Broadcasting from high above the reserve, this is Radio Harambe. Jumbo, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Radio Harambe, the companion podcast to our website, jomboeveryone.com. I am Dave McBride, broadcasting from the Radio Harambe studios and joining me from somewhere in the world, it's Safari Mike. Mike, where are you today? Dave, I am in the Sierra del Cristal National Park. Sierra what? Del Cristal. Del Cristal. Well, that's definitely... It's definitely Spanish of some type. <laughs> Sierra del Cristo. Sierra. Sierra del Cristo. Well, hmm. Sierra del Cristo. Uh, I'm going to go with Venezuela. Because I've never heard of it, so i got to pick a, a country I might not know. Okay, what? What? Why did, why did you say that? Did I get it? No, Cuba. Cuba! <laughs> I'm in Cuba. Well, you're not very far away at all. <laughs> Dave, we're studying the Solanodon. Sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. But it's actually a, like, sort of like a very large shrew that is one of the most primitive mammals on Earth. It is only found in a few places in Cuba. In fact, since it was discovered in 1861, there are so few times being seen that periodically they've been thought to be extinct. But they are still around. We're trying to find them, and the amazing thing about them is they actually have venomous saliva that they will inject into prey using grooves on their incisors. What is it called Quite again? Incredible. S O L E N O D O N. Wow. Solanodon. They're weird looking guys, and it's it's not not even a, a reptile. It's a, it, it's a shrew. It's a mammal. Wow. Very primitive uh, mammal, very similar to Tenrax from Madagascar. And indigenous to Cuba. Indigenous to Cuba, correct. Wow, that's fascinating. Cool. Also joining us on the show today, and uh, he is here as our resident expert for our feature presentation, or our feature section, which I will explain in just a minute, is the host. Right? Can I call you the host, Josh? The host of Modern Mouse Radio, Josh Taylor. Josh, how are you? I like to refer to myself as that most of the time, uh, as well as Emperor. I like being called Emperor. Um, Mike, yeah, can I like ask Dave. you? I know, yeah, <laughs> Mike, is is this like a shrew that you can tame? Is this something to be trained? Uh, it's oh, very Shakespearean of you. Right, I know. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for bringing me back on. This is my second time on. So yes, you're, think na- I'm you're now a holding veteran. records. You're now a veteran. <laughs> I am a veteran. I'm, well, I've been on I've been on Wedway Radio three times now, so nice. Just gonna keep on, you know, gaining momentum here. Eventually, I'm just gonna take over your show and Wedway Radio show. It's as all well. yours, man. It's all cool. yours. You can have it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on today's show, we're gonna discuss all the news from Disney's Animal Kingdom and the rest of Walt Disney World, and then in our final segment. 
We are going to do our second installment of the prehistory of Disney's Animal Kingdom, and we're going to discuss the true life adventures. That's the reason why Josh is here, but we'll tell you more about that in a little bit. Let's begin with the local news, and before I do that, Mike, I'm not sure I mentioned that the Warden Wilson Matua's Air Rangers t-shirts were on the... um, on our Zazzle store last time. I may have. I'm sure did. I did. Great. Did. So let's mention them again. They're <laughs> very, very uh, well-received. One of our more popular uh, T-shirts. Go to Zazzle.com slash Jumbo Everyone. If you want to join Warden Wilson Matua's Air Rangers, you can buy all, do all the T-shirt design things you can do on Zazzle. All of the money we make off that 100% goes to our conservation partners. Now, let's begin the news at I would Disney's- I would actually add, Dave, yes. that while you're on Zazzle, you could go over to the uh, Modern Mouse store on Zazzle and get a Safari Mark shirt. <laughs> we, you know, we actually are no longer on Zazzle. Oh no, no. that's uh, right. You moved over to, um, uh, to what's the name of it? We moved over to Spreadshirt. Spreadshirt so we are yeah. ModernMouseRadio.Spreadshirt.com, where you can get your Safari Mark T-shirt um, as well as a Modern Mouse Radio shirt. Have are, have you been selling like hotcakes to Safari Mark, Mark shirts? You know, I've been trying to convince Angie to get back into doing uh, the Hester and Chester series to do more Safari Mark stuff uh, because they are not as popular as they once were. But I think that's due to because there hasn't been a new comic in a while. <laughs> Maybe we need to make Safari Mike shirts. Yeah, well, if you've ever seen Safari Mark, it's pretty close. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay. It's pretty close. <laughs> so let's begin the local news. And actually, we're going to begin at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. This is something I just found out today. Apparently, the lodge has changed one of its rules for guests and is now allowing people to bring balloons into their resort rooms. Hmm. They're not allowed on the balconies or in any exterior area facing the animals, but they are now allowed to bring balloons into the resort and into their room, which was always one of those weird things that people weren't aware of until they got told, sorry, you can't bring the balloon inside. <laughs> is that right. a problem for most people? Well, the problem is if the balloon breaks and ends up in the animal enclosure, the animals could ingest it and it would kill them. Correct, Mike? That is correct. It happens yeah. at zoos every once in a while. So, Ooh. yeah. So they. So you're not. That's why they don't sell balloons at the park. Um, and uh, I'm surprised they're doing this here, but uh, they, for some reason, they have decided they are going to allow it. So that is a change. Speaking of change, let's go over to the Animal Kingdom. Mike Tamu Tamu has made some changes that you have reported on. You want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. I mean, just briefly, we as we mentioned before. We, we had talked about when Harambe Market, the uh, counter service, opened that Tamu Tamu may go back to its old days where it was just a dessert place. A refreshment and stand. Is, <laughs> yes, and that's exactly what it is. It's now it's selling those Dole Whips. It's selling some ice cream sandwiches. I, mean, I think it's even selling some chocolate-covered espresso beans. But it's all sort of desserts, ice cream, refreshments, that kind of thing now. Well, that's so, what the word means, right? Yep. So yeah. it's weird that it sold, you know... Uh, noodles and things like that when it really meant like sweet bar. Yeah, well, when it was originally geared just to be, and that's the, the size of it is really just geared towards, you know, being basically an ice cream stand or, or soda uh, area. But when Tusker House went from counter service to sit down, they, they figured they needed a place to, where somebody could grab a quick bite. But it was never right. really conducive to that. It's just not big enough. 
it's just you know there's only one window i mean it, and now with hundreds of people leaving festival of the lion king in one fell swoop it really can get bogged down so but now it's basically a dole whip ice cream sand stand that kind of thing cool also those of you um going to disney's animal kingdom in the next week or so triceratops spin is going to be closed uh, no, it's just a weak kind of repair. Uh, I hate to see a, 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 a Disney park without a spinner ride, but you're not going to have one at Animal Kingdom up until uh, May 24th. Uh, also, speaking of changes for the week, the Dino Land Dance of Palooza. I, I think I said that right. Uh, oh, that character thingamajig uh, that was in Dino Land, kind of like parade slash something dance party thingamajig. It was a dance party. Yeah, yeah it was, it was a dance party. Uh, and it's gone. Uh, we always thought it was temporary, right, right Mike? Yeah, well, they, they they wound up putting it on the schedule at some point in time. But, but yes, it took it was... them a long time to do that. <laughs> yeah, it did. It yeah. did. So there's no uh, no word on any replacement or any changes. Uh, I think as the uh, as we go through a lull here, that's when things like this kind of stop. Uh, crowds will kind of die down a little bit and then pick back up in the middle of June. Um, so maybe they'll add something else, something else then that they don't tell anybody about as well. Speaking of things that are happening that they don't tell anybody about, um, the Reedy Creek Fire Department... <laughs> code for Disney's own uh, fire emergency responders, actually had to evacuate people from Cali River Rapids last week, uh, essentially pulling them off their rafts while the ride was shut down. Um, Disney never talks about what happened here, so we don't exactly know the nature of this. Um, But have you read about this, Mike? I did. I mean, the only thing I can assume, Dave, is I think what they do with the, when Cali River, you know, has a... um, technical issue they could drain the they could drain that river fast right and people could just get out of their rafts and, and walk about their merry way however if one of the rafts has somebody who is wheelchair bound oh then they are going to have to bring the fire department in. and i think that's probably my guess would be that that's what happened here josh i always think about whenever i read especially when i read this i always think about um how they were going to have tigers near this ride at some point in time and uh how would you like to be trapped with the, with no barrier but a little river between you and a bunch of tigers i mean it would definitely be a great story you know i could write a book about it later <laughs> for sure <laughs> anyway um what else did i have here oh they uh, the biggest one of them all, uh, Mike. I don't know if we talked about this in the last show. This was if this was before or after the last show. I can't remember for sure. But we know that there's a camel show, mm-hmm. and we're calling it a show. Um, it's kind of a show like Flights of One. I mean, like uh, Winged Encounters is a show, right? Um, that is taking place involving Arabian camels. It's in the testing phase. It's so far. The only way we know this is happening right now is because Joe Rody actually put it on a Twitter feed. Unless, Mike, you've seen more pictures than that. I've seen more pictures. Okay, so we know that some Since people then. have seen it. We yeah. actually sent Scott Campbell, a friend of ours, who does the Dixie Landings Radio podcast, into the park, and he never saw it. So I guess this is on a real test phase at this point. Yeah. This is yeah. what I've what I've been hearing about this is that. Um, because camels, uh, I mean, you guys can attest to this, if they're stressed out or irritated in certain ways, they can be, well, they spit on people or they can be <laughs> right. somewhat vicious, you know, in, in a certain way. Um, they have a real bad attitude, you know, in, in with anxiety. 
So uh, they've been parading them around the park after hours is what I've been seeing. So the, the pictures that you're seeing online, um, uh, especially from Joe Rody, I think are at 7, 8 p.m. when the park closes at 6 to try and get these animals used to um, the land. That's how it that started. Yeah, so I think that as they're um, bringing these camels in and kind of chauffeuring them around the park, maybe they can ease them into it and eventually introduce guests. I'm not sure if they've introduced guests to them yet. They have. They absolutely have. Oh, okay, they have. And, and, and yeah, and when Joe Rody took a picture and showed it, he was that was actually during the during a regular day. In fact, there was people taking pictures of him watching the, <laughs> the camel thing. Uh, I have seen a couple of other Instagram photos of people who are not cast members who are just oh look what we saw today at the Animal Kingdom. So they have busted it out at least once or twice. So they've moved uh, on from the from from the, the initial testing phase, which is what Josh Correct. is probably describing, to maybe just one or two, probably not when Discovery Island is at its busiest. I would imagine that would be sort of the next uh, phase, probably. But Josh is one hundred percent right. They started off with uh, just parading them around during the after hours, and they uh, when the first time I heard having camels in uh, with Disney guests. The first thing I did think of is somebody's going to get spit on. Yep. Totally. <laughs> but, Mike, didn't they have camels kind of out among guests at the Bronx Zoo? Oh, sure. You could ride them. Yeah. So they're they, not, they have camel rides. They're, 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 they're not they're, all bad, right? No, they're domesticated animals, so they're, Just they're cranky. used to people being around, but they, they do get a little cranky and they could spit on you. They're not the... You know, they're fascinating animals, though. I mean, if if you want to know, learn about adaptations to an environment, I mean, camel is probably the the prime example exactly. of an animal that is really adapted to its environment. And I'm assuming that that's you know in part what they talk about this thing, as well as the you know the cultural significance of them. They're very important, obviously, to cultures throughout Asia and Africa. Right. So. I yeah. believe that's what they're going for here. It's a cool addition. We always love when they do stuff like this, bring animals into the park, um, you know, change changes in the animal show and the animal uh, exhibits and stuff. So this is this is great news. And I'm excited to see it. Uh, if it's half as good as Winged Encounters was, it's going to be worthy of, uh, of a permanent place there as long as the camels continue to behave. That will do it for the local news. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Safari Mike will have the world news. Jumbo listeners, this is Scott from the Dixie Landings Radio Podcast. JumboEveryone.com and Radio Harambre are working to raise funds for their conservation partners by offering some great Animal Kingdom-related products for sale at Zazzle.com slash JumboEveryone. There's some great animal apparel and even exclusive line of not-a-half-day park stuff, and all the profits go towards helping to save wildlife. I've got mine and a couple of them, and now you can get yours too. Go to Zazzle.com slash JumboEveryone or click the store tab at jomboeveryone.com. Quaharini. Back to Radio Harambe. It is time for the world news. And with that, as always, in Cuba, 
Safari Mike. <laughs> Dave, we'll be going to Future World and Hollywood Studios, but first, let's go to Disney Springs. I know, Dave, that you think of that as a golf resort. Four? Josh thinks of that as a what, retirement community. That's what you think It is definitely like, right, a beautiful retirement community i've seen it recently <laughs> well mike i think you can combine those two together and then you really have it right it's a that's like a golf reti- yeah it's like a retirement golf community they have them all over the place down there it's just another In one Florida, that they, perfect it's yeah. just another one that, that disney owns this time it's good they're getting into this business yes well anyway dave moving on in the fall <laughs> of this year at the landing in Disney Springs, I'm not sure if that is part of the golf course or more of the, <laughs> maybe the clubhouse for the retirement community. I'm not sure. But Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar will be opening, Dave. And, of course, you know who Jock Lindsay is, don't you? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah? Who is he? He played third base for the uh, – for the uh, uh, for one thing, I, I, I'll, I'll – well – he was a footballer, a, a, an English soccer player. He was also something to do with Indiana Jones, if I remember correctly. Uh, <laughs> you are correct. Uh, um, was he the pilot with the snake? He was indeed. Ah, we- say, you tried to you tried to fool me, but I was smarter <laughs> than that. We have known since I think since last year that there was something going to be called the hangar. Um, coming to the, this area of Pleasure Island, which is near the Boathouse in Paradiso 37. It is an aviation-themed bar and lounge that will have seats for about 150 people, both indoor and outdoor. And it's going to be themed after this particular character from the Indiana Jones movie. Um, there's going to be kind of very, I guess, kitschy or campy kind of um, items on the menu, like the Hovido Mojito and the oh, all Air Pirates Everything Pretzels and the Rolling boulder meatballs. There's going to be, it's going to be mostly you know signature drinks. You know, it's going to be a bar, obviously, with small plates, some tapas, um, and there's actually going to be a boat, which is nicknamed the Reggie, which of course was the name of the snake. Right. Um, that, that's going to be in dry dock. You can actually sit on it. That's kind of the outdoor seating. You sitting on this little um, steamboat that's attached to, to the bar and sitting there in the uh, at dry dock. So it looks like a interestingly themed restaurant or excuse me lounge it does make me think uh, because you said that it was named just the hangar uh you know a few months ago mm-hmm. and now we're getting this indiana jones theme of how quickly they decided to attach indy's name to this um <laughs> in the long run uh, i think most of us might have an idea that the Indiana Jones show at Hollywood Studios may or may not go away. Uh, so they need something, maybe Indiana Jones. Maybe they just decided to attach this very quickly. So I'm interested to see um, how much thought per Indiana Jones. I'm a really big Indiana Jones fan. Mm-hmm. Um, is really going into this, or if this is like, yeah, we'll just throw a few aviation uh, 1940s Americana stuff on the wall and call it good. I, it, 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 I mean, at least they're doing some. I, 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 I don't know. It's it seems like a nice um, idea. It looks an awful lot like you know we're getting close to Adventures Club stuff here. Um, I, I like it. I like the idea. I like the idea of the dry dock boat. Yeah, that's cool. Um, no, I love the idea. I'm just yeah. stating that it seems very last minute. It does. You're absolutely right. It seems like they just said, well, nobody's going to really care about a 
hanger. So let's try to get something in there that people may buy the T-shirt for. And I, I think that maybe this is the first time that I'm aware of it besides, um, you know, the old Pleasure Island, which I think we're all sad about. But mm-hmm. um, this is the first time that Disney has really themed something downtown is making it their own i mean usually they yeah. rent out the space like the boathouse uh you know rainforest cafe t-rex etc i would love to see more if they put some time and thought and energy into this more things like this themed restaurants to i mean they have 500 franchises now so why not use those in these kind of spaces i mean who doesn't want to go to an indiana jones bar that sounds like a great time right. if they put thought and energy into it right I still want them to build the Raven in uh, Shirkazong uh, somewhere near Expedition Everest. That would be awesome. I was just going to say that. that That's the Great. one. That's the bar people think of with Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this this is just sort of, I think you're right. I think this is just sort of an afterthought to put, put some sort of Indiana Jones tie into it. But if it ends up being good, who cares? What's next, Mike? Great. Dave, speaking of Lucas Properties Uh-oh. over at Hollywood Studios, a special dining experience is coming for the Star Wars weekends in 2015. It's called Rebel Hangar, a Star Wars lounge experience. Okay. Will feature a specially created menu of Star Wars inspired food and drink um, from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And it's only on Star Wars weekends, which takes place from May 15 to June 14. Uh, you can make reservations now. The menu has it's going to be in an area of the Backlot Express, which is of course over by uh, the Star Tours um, area. Okay. I, that was my Some, question. Was going to be where is this? Yeah, that's. I, it only says it's going to be located in an area of the Backlot Express. It's not taking over the entire restaurant. It appears. Okay. But anyway, some of the items uh, there are things such as the lightsaber bites, oh, which no. are hand dipped corn batter knockworks <laughs> sausages. Oh come on! Uh, yeah, chicken and Darth Vader waffles. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just Darth Maul hummus. And they actually make the the hummus look like a Darth Maul. Okay, um, okay, that's kind of cool. I'll okay. go with that. No, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. I just pulled the this Padme up. Padme Amidala Naboo salad. Yeah, Mike is going real easy on the <laughs> on this. Okay, I just pulled up the menu on the StarWars.com website. It, it, Josh, it gets way worse than this. <laughs> Chips and Sith. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. Okay, the drink menu is Tatooine Sunset. Uh, Imperial Blue, the Dagobah Swamp Juice. I mean, this this gets so full of puns, it's almost painful to look at. Yeah, Alderan uh, Ale. Oh God! I oh. actually have I actually cringe a lot more with I think with the uh, food than I do with the drinks. I don't the know. trio yeah. of thermal detonators is probably the worst. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Yeah, that sounds like a bathroom nightmare. And the crispy chicken and waffles is called the dark fried. <laughs> Seems, I mean, who doesn't want one of those, right? <laughs> oh my god! I mean, it's cute, but it's a little, little, little much, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it's a little much. And if they ever do build a uh, Star Wars cantina, yeah, um, I really hope they don't go down this route. But they probably will. Yeah, they probably will. And uh, you know, I don't. As long as the cantina is great, um, and I hope that this is a portent of that. You know, the test phase of how much people may actually be into something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, man, oh, man, I don't care what they call the stuff they serve as long as the cantina looks like the cantina, you know. Can right. I ask you guys something real quick? 
um, with the cantina, and I, I just thought of this. Do you want it to be a family restaurant, or would you rather see it more like La Cava del Tequila, more like a small bar? No, it's the most no, wretched hide of scum and villainy. It should be a it should be a place where the uh, where the crazies go. Come on now, Mike, a family place. Nah, it's got to be family. Now I want somebody at the bar threatening me with a blaster. Yeah, but that could still be family. Uh, well, it could be, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> see, because my thought—we disagree that- on this, Josh. I want it to be a bar, bar, but I know it'll be a family place. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you be. there. I would love to see this be a fifty-person bar of scoundrels. I would love that, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think Mike's right. I think that it's gonna we're going to yeah. see a ridiculously large. Uh, counter service style restaurant it's gonna have to be because it's gonna there's if they do things like a animatronic um band playing Mm -hmm. people are just gonna be dying to get into the place and they can't they can't make it small it's gonna it's more so than trader sam's yeah much more so than trader sam's it'll be as big a draw as something like the beast the beauty and the beast one um it's it's they're gonna need to make it big absolutely absolutely my my thought here is with um this rubble hanger being a really being more of a test phase of possibly a long-term cantina like you said Mm -hmm. and the introduction last year of character meet and greets in restaurants that this may also be in the long term a cantina that has sit down meals with characters yeah Mm mm-hmm that's that's my thought, especially since they're doing breakfast things. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that's probably true. Now, Mike, um, is there any word on any decor for this Rebel Hangar, or is it just going to be a normal counter service thing and we're going to have themed food, food with funny names? I don't know of any decor, Dave, so it's... Okay. It's, so they haven't talked about that. Okay. No, right. as far as I know, they, they haven't mentioned anything. All right. What's next? Dave, the uh, Epcot, uh, excuse me, the monorail system um, is going to have reduced hours from Sunday through Wednesday, and that's going to start in on, uh, well, it's actually already started May 3rd, and it's going to continue through July. Essentially, the hours currently for the the Epcot beam had been 8 a.m. till two hours after uh, any of the parks closed, but now it's going to go be basically 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. The express beam has all sorts of hours. Um, you know, it, it, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, it basically closes at 11.30, no matter what time, I guess, the Magic Kingdom is open till. Oh, that's not um, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's going to be a few, you know, different... There are times during the middle of the day on Thursday and Friday where it's not even running. Um, and also, the resort beam has hours. Now, well, from Sunday through Wednesday is basically... Um, the morning it, it fluctuates in the morning, but it stops at midnight again, no matter what time the Magic Kingdom closes. Although Thursday through Saturday is the normal hour. So, if you're staying at one of those resorts or want to run the go on the monorail and whatnot, you better check into the operating schedule for it. Uh, I mean, guys, we talk about. I've said this a million times. The day is coming when this is going to have to close. I mean, pieces of concrete can't stand in that fashion forever. And they've been there for, (laughs) you know, for going on 40 years now. And they're not going to replace them. I mean, they're just not. It's too expensive. And I 
promise you that in in certainly in your son's lifetime, Mike, there will be a rapid and giant change to the monorail system, if not a complete takeout of it. Because I don't see what, how they're going to fix it. I mean, it, it, and it's obviously going through over the last few years. It's going through a you know something that's causing them to to shut it down because they've never done it before. They you know they never had they never shut down the monorail for thirty five years or thirty years or whatever it is for and 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 cut back on these things. Well, I mean, it's it could been just forty five years, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it could just be a cost cutting measure. Um, I'm sure that has something. To do I'm with sure it, that has something to do with it, but we all have heard the rumblings that it's more than that. Absolutely, you know, it breaks down a lot. So, Josh, your thoughts yes. on the monorail closing? I mean, it's hard for me. I'm much more optimistic than you. Um, <laughs> well, that's really, true for everybody, Josh. <laughs> uh, I know. I've I've read the reviews for your podcast. Um, <laughs> so. Um, my thought here is, is I mean, you're charging $500, $600 a night, you know, at some of these hotels on, on the monorail loop, basically because you have yeah. the monorail, um, without having an outcry of people not booking rooms at these hotels, uh, there's got to be something, whether it's, um, you know, an upgraded monorail system, you know, they close it down and, and restructure, rebuild, I know that's more costly, or you know, uh, having more boat fleets out on the lake, which I think is more possible than not. Um, I mean, it's difficult to think of a Disney resort without a monorail. I mean, it's true in Disneyland, at Walt Disney World, at Tokyo. I mean, it's so connected to the Disney name. Um, it's difficult to see a park, especially the biggest resort, attraction mm-hmm. in the world not having one but those other parks don't have a system the size of of Walt Disney World's i certainly think the one between epcot and magic kingdom probably won't run forever i would well, say the if there was going right? you know, yeah but still i would say it's the least traveled one yes yeah so i would assume if they were going to take one away that would definitely be the one it would save them a lot of money in the long term, and then they could put that money towards rebuilding right. the loop. That would make more sense too. Yeah, because that loop is huge. I mean, it's a it's a big, big cost, millions and millions to replace even one pilot. You know, it's just not an easy thing to do. Anyway, uh, Mike, what uh, do we have? Anything else? Just one more, Dave. Go ahead. Uh, Captain EO, which left for a preview of Tomorrowland. Well, now it's been announced that starting on May 30th, the Tomorrowland preview will go bye-bye, mostly because Tomorrowland will be out in movie theaters by then. Right. And will be replaced by a preview of the Inside Out movie coming from Pixar, which I'm quite excited about. It looks like a great movie. But you'll be able to catch a preview there of Inside Out starting May 30th at the Magic Eye Theater in Epcot. When is Inside Out due to be released in theaters? Uh, late June. I don't remember exact wow. date, but late June. Wow. So that so 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 they're going to need to come up with a new one right after that. <laughs> well, what's it, when does Ant Man come out? Is that like in August sometime? Yeah, I think. So. Yeah. 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 And uh, then Star Wars is in December. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> 
you could show just a two and a half minute trailer for Star Wars and people will go to see it before it opens up for sure. You could just show on a constant loop that uh, Han Solo saying Chewie were home. From yeah, the last exactly. <laughs> <laughs> people show up. <laughs> exactly. All right, so that's it. That's it. All right, so we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to delve into the prehistory of Disney's Animal Kingdom when talk a little true life adventures. Stay tuned. Hi, Explorer Mickey here. Did you know there are only a few thousand great green macaws left in the wild? There are such beautiful birds, but people are causing them to disappear. But we can help. The ARA project works to save the habitats for lots of different kinds of macaws. They also help rescue birds and even hatch baby chicks to keep the population growing. So we need to help them do all of that good stuff by going to the araproject.org and making a donation. Every little bit counts. Hey folks, Dave here interrupting this episode to clarify a bit of what we have coming up. You see, our plan was for myself, Safari Mike, and Josh Taylor of Modern Mouse Radio to discuss the True Life Adventure series, the entire True Life Adventure series, and their influence on the opening of Disney's Animal Kingdom. But we ended up talking for way longer than we ever would make you poor folks have to listen to in one show. So what we're going to do is split this up into two parts. Tonight, you're going to hear our discussion about the first half of the series, which were all short films. And then on the next episode, we're going to finish off with all the feature-length films that made up the later years of the series. So thanks again, and enjoy. Now back to your regularly scheduled episode. If Walt Disney should be remembered as one thing, I would say it's as an innovator. Disney took many chances and often invented things that are now mainstays of the entertainment world. Besides defining the modern theme park, inventing the art of feature-length animated films, pushing the envelope and everything from movie special effects to even city planning, one of his other great legacies, really, is the nature documentary. Um, to back up a little bit, during World War II, Disney was forced to produce a series of documentary-style films for the first time, uh, at least for him, uh, and they were for the war effort. And after the war had ended, his interest in the genre kind of didn't fade away. So in the late 1940s, Walt started to become interested in nature footage. He then found an adventurous couple named Alfred and Elma Malott, who he contracted to film some footage in Alaska with the idea of using it for a new film. He then appointed James Alger as director, who had previously directed the Victory Through Air Power film during the war. He also was part of Fantasia. Um, and together with editor uh, Anthony Gerard, narrator Winston Hibbler, there was also a producer, I think, named Ben Sharpstein. Uh, they created a film from Malat's footage called Seal Island. It was a half-hour story of the life and challenges of fur seals in the Pribiliffs, a set of island off the coast of Alaska, and also a great little tongue twister. Uh, literally, no one but Walt saw any commercial value in this idea, including 
including, most importantly, of course, his brother Roy and everyone at RKO, who were the current uh, were at were the Disney film distributors at that time. RKO actually refused to release it in theaters. Walt was determined to prove himself right, so he convinced his buddies at a Crown Theater in Pasadena, California, to run the film for a week, which then made it eligible for an Academy Award. Which he then won in 1948. Uh, he also won a 1949 Cannes Film Festival as well. Uh, after receiving the Oscar, Walt famously paraded into his brother's office and said, take this over to RKO and bang them over the head with it. Uh, Seal Island was incredibly received and a beautiful film. It began a series of 13 true life adventures, which includes seven shorts and six feature length films. Uh, throughout the run of the series, director James Alger, producer Ben Sharpstein, and narrator Winston Hibbler were constants, but the series also saw the beginning of the career of a young Disney family member, Roy E. Disney, who served as, uh, I think, an editor on some of the films. He uh, was an editor and producer. Yeah, yeah, and I think he was on set, or on location on one or two as well. Um, it should also be said that the True Life Adventures received plenty of criticism for the scientific world for presenting animals in more human terms and within less than realistic storylines. Many of the films even made use of animation in some of the storytelling, with most of the non-nature footage being animated, mostly for the purposes of background information. But this is exactly what Walt wanted. He aimed to present the natural world and all of its splendor to an audience that was, you know, for lack of a better term, somewhat ignorant and maybe even disinterested. <laughs> he, he was very successful in this endeavor because the uh, nature documentary soon became a staple on television and film, and mostly because of Walt and the True Life Adventures. By the time Walt Disney completed and released his final True Life Adventure, which was the film Jungle Cat, about a jaguar in the Amazon jungle, uh, the series had won a total of eight Academy Awards. More important, it inspired generations of nature documentarians. With each film, Disney shot literally hundreds of thousands of feet of film, often editing it down to less than half of that, sometimes even a, a tenth of that. For the actual finished product. And during that process, Disney actually created, perhaps up to that point, the greatest visual documentation known at the time for wildlife researchers and scientists around the world. Some of the footage captured was nothing short of groundbreaking and brought a world a new understanding of the lives and challenges of this subject. It's these very ideals brought to the True Life Adventures by Walt Disney that are the same ones which I think are alive and well today in Disney's Animal Kingdom, making these films a seminal moment in the prehistory, the leading up to the park that we talk about and love so much. Not only did these films begin a lifelong love of nature and wildlife for Walt, but it also made that love a part of his legacy left behind for people like Joe Rohde. Um, gentlemen, this is a lengthy subject, and because Mike and I... Um, have I, Mike? I, I can only name maybe about four of these that I've watched from beginning to end uh, in one sitting. <laughs> are, are, can you can you say better than that, or is that? No, you... I can't say better than that. I've seen from beginning to end: Vanishing Prairie, African Lion, Seal Island, obviously. Yeah. Um, I've seen Secrets of Life, but I don't think I've seen that from like beginning to end. I've seen some of White Wilderness, some of Jungle Cat, but. Yeah, that, Josh is the is the man to go to. So that brings us to uh, why we have brought on our guest, a man who Yikes. apparently has <laughs> an obsessive compulsive need to watch every single Disney film in its chronological order. Is that correct, John? You're watching them in order. So when I started Modern Mouse Radio, I 
I thought, well, what you really need for a great blog is a good series. Uh, I mean, you guys do that. Uh, Dave, you have the photo blog. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you do some stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you guys have uh, several other people that, uh, that contribute. Of and course. I thought that one of the things that I really loved is uh, history. And I loved not only reviewing the films, but also kind of talking about the innovations here and obviously true life adventures like you went over in amazing detail huge innovation i mean this was really the first time we saw documentaries based solely on wilderness um and i want to kind of butt in here and just say that when they shot seal island the original intent was actually to make an alaskan documentary about the culture about the people about the wildlife everything but when it came to it walt really found the center the core of all of this footage to be the seals and um, their lives. Everything else didn't matter to him. Uh, And I think that creating this was maybe even a mistake because he really did want to capture the culture of the great white North. Mm -hmm. And um, so going back to, to the modern mouse blog, when I thought about Disney as a whole company, I thought, well, it'd be really great if somebody went back and showed how, uh, Disney innovated movie to movie, going from one to the next. And when I started it, I was like, okay, great. I've got Snow White, first feature-length animated film. We've got Pinocchio <laughs> using all this great uh, you know, technical prowess as far as animation, Fantasia, right. the music. And then we get into some films, and it's just like, why is Fess Parker in every single film? Please. <laughs> like... Stop making Western films. You're not good at it. Um, you know, you had a hit once, but leave it be. However, I, as I've been, uh, I think I'm up to 1958 at this point. Uh, I've started in, you know, Snow White in 1937 to 1958. So I'm, I'm a good ways in, but I'm a long ways from finishing this project. Um, what I've found that is kind of a gem amongst the 1950s as I'm going through all of these um weird western film starring fez parker and <laughs> mickey mouse club characters right, right. Um, there's a lot of those yeah yeah i mean you just get all these different live action films there are two gems that are really still happening it's the animation part of the studio you had sleeping beauty cinderella peter pan during mm-hmm. that time period and these very coddled nature documentaries and, and by coddled i mean that there was a very small group of people. You you named all of them: Alger, uh, Ben Sharpstein. Um, you know, a, about five or six guys mm-hmm. working at the studio, outside of the cinematography side of it. Right. Um, and we'll and we'll get to that later and why it eventually became kind of the downfall of the cinematography side of it. Right. Um, you had these four or five guys that really, this is all they worked on. They didn't work on animation. They didn't work on live action films. They sat at the studio, wrote the scripts, um, edited these films, narrated them, etc. And that's what they did all year. And from 1948 to 1960, every year there was a brand new, or almost every year, a brand new nature documentary put out by these four or five guys, you know, with Walt Disney giving them the big thumbs up, and then that's it. So when you talk about these guys as far as their production and directing and narrating... 
there wasn't a huge team involved in these. And correct me if I'm wrong, the the, the guys who we're talking about, the people who were involved from the beginning, um, director James Alger, producer Ben Sharpstein, the yeah. narrator was the same for all of them. Um, yep. There was also, a, a, the editor was exactly the same. His name was Anthony Girard. He was, I don't know if he was for all of them, but he was certainly the editor of a lot of them. Um, these guys were the Disney guys, but most of the films were shot by what we would call sort of outside photographers, by pe- people who were um, known in the field of nature documentary right. or nature filming. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and they've been to the nature documentary, so not necessarily that, but these were definitely photographers or videographers right. um, that were very good at what they did. You know, they went out and shot, and they sat out wherever they were. I mean, you talk about Seal Island. Um, <laughs> that couple sat up there for like almost yeah. a year mm-hmm. shooting film. However, you know, not all of that film, obviously, like you were saying, a tenth of it got used. But they shot so much every day, no matter what. I mean, it's amazing that these cinematographers do that. But they were definitely outside sources. They weren't necessarily Disney people. These weren't people that were rubbing elbows with Walt at the studio. Right, right. Although I believe he ended up being friends with the Malats. I mean, I, I think that they were a uh, a company, a, a couple that he ended up uh, really appreciating and, and really having a... Uh you know, a, a, a reverence for over the years. Uh, I mean, if somebody got you an Academy Award, you would be friends with them too. Yeah, they got him a couple too. Yeah, because <laughs> because they were involved in a few of these, which we'll get to as we go. Um, Seal Island was the first. It was a short film. Um, the first five or six were all shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll go through them very quickly. In 1949, Seal Island was an Academy Award winner, uh, which we talked about. In 1959, um, Beaver Valley, which I think was called In Beaver Valley, um, was released. It also won an Academy Award. It was about... Um, this one, I think, was known for... Now, this is one that I've only seen bits of in educational films. Now, here, here's another thing. A lot of, the, a lot of this document uh, of, of this film that were used were cut up into educational films for schools and such to use over the years. So uh, much of this footage was seen outside of the context of these films. So when Correct. we so when we get into the criticism of the film, which is you know which I mentioned before about um, you know the sort of uh, humanizing terms of the of the animals, um, that's not the whole story behind this footage. A lot of this footage was used very much so for educational purposes. Without all of that, um, and this one had like a lot of these real cool sort of. Inside the uh, you know the den of a beaver, inside the nest of an eagle, you know this this incredible footage that people have just never seen anything of, and this is all kind of in your backyard. So rather than being up in the tundra of Alaska, this was stuff that was not far from from California at all at the time. No, but still, it was uh, amazing to see. Like you were saying, um, put yourself in 1950 and exactly and say what you've seen on film in the theater. And you see romantic movies and comedies and, you know, horror films, but you're not seeing this documentary where it really just puts you in um, these places that humans don't go. I mean, when was the last time you decided to swim into a beaver's den? You know, it, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I, I've it's, never decided to do that, Josh. 
it sounds silly, but these I've done cinema- it only twice. I know. I'm sure you have. Well, we know um, that, Mike. <laughs> but the cinematographers, you know, decided that that would be a great place to go. And they, I mean, I would assume putting your head in a beaver's den, you might get a little chomp here or there. Um, there's risks being taken there as far as cinematography. I like that. I think that that's part of the Academy Award winning side of it is that um, you put yourself in a space that you wouldn't be in hopes that you get some great footage. And they did. Um, On the production side of it, they added in the silly stories. They added in the anthropomorphized side of it, the human side of it. And that wasn't really a big deal, I think, at this point until you get to the the living desert when it gets to be more of a problem in the feature film thing. I think you can get away with a lot more in short subject film. And I think a lot of the short subject film, it was it, the, the feel certainly of the um, narration was kind of a little tongue in cheek with that. Absolutely. But that's kind of how the Disney studio had done stuff with narration. I right. mean, if you go and look at victory uh, through air power, which James Alger did, it was one of his, I mean, he did Fantasia and then he did that. Right. Um, victory through air power is supposed to be about how we're going to defeat the Nazis. More or less. That's kind of how it's going to happen. However, in that film, there's a four or five minute cartoon um, about aviation. And it's silly and it's funny. And it makes that film kind of a Disney feel. So I don't really mind the anthropomorphized thing here, especially in the short subjects, because you're showing this great footage. You're showing this. And if you're a smart person... um, you can tell the difference between what a silly story is, you know, and this anthropomorphized thing versus mm-hmm. what you're actually really seeing here. And in some cases they do blur that line, but in, for the most part, you can kind of get that and, and see like, okay, yeah, you're telling me this, but I think if I just put this film on silent and watched this, it'd be an interesting film still. Yes, I would agree. I would, I, I would totally agree. The next one, was one that kind of this one actually I think was was released along with Alice in Wonderland. Um, it was called Nature's Half Acre, another short film, and it was how would you describe this, Josh? Like kind of like like typical backyard kind of animals, a lot of time yeah. lapse footage. I mean, it, this is this is kind of a weirder, harder to put your hand <laughs> to describe this subject. Talking about things that are like thrown together. Um, I feel like this was uh, maybe like their effort and the fact that they got Seal Island, they got Beaver Valley, and they just decided to go out with cameras one day and just kind of shoot some stuff um, and, <laughs> and put it together. Really, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of what this was. This was, I feel like, the hump that they kind of had to roll over. Um, it's not as exciting. I mean, out of all of the different short subjects... Um, Beyond, for me, I don't really know about the powers of the Everglades. I don't know anything really about that one. Um, But when you're talking about all the shorts, you have a specific one for beavers, a specific one for seals, um, bears, and then you just kind of have this nature's half acre, Mm -hmm. which is just kind of like a bunch of footage thrown together. Right, without a single subject, without a single... um you know, a, a, a point to the subject. Not not like right, you're saying, not no, one particular there's no animal. Like, there's, right, no, there's no like story arc there. Then there's no star of the show. There's no, no. Yeah, right, there's all these different things. Uh, it also won an Academy Award mostly because the time-lapse footage in it is really groundbreaking. 
I mean, there's... it is, and it, they definitely use that in in future uh, documentaries uh, within the series. I think that the time yeah. lapse thing, again, another innovation, another great thing that exactly. they added to their list of things that they could do at the Disney Studio. Um, a great way to show something, especially if they're struggling to find something to show which i think that they kind of did here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i think that the time lapse the cinematography again stands out more than the production uh storytelling side here right i mean that's a that's a um a tool used to this very day in these type of in this type of footage oh yeah uh, and, and we still see a lot of it the next one now we move on to 1952 now so we've done four in four years these are all short films this one was called the olympic elk and it is exactly that. It's about elk <laughs> in the Olympia Peninsula of Washington. Um, right. And this one kind of focuses on sort of the um, social behaviors of this herding animal, you know, because the elk, Mike, you could probably talk about this a little bit more. They're a migratory animal. Um, yeah, right. There's, you know, they beat each other up over girls, you know, all, yeah, all these yeah, kind of fun things that, that make for good television. Yeah, males, you know, will clash and... Yeah, that's always a staple of uh, documentaries, especially early on like this, where fighting deer over over females and stuff like that. You know, the big rush each other and smack head on to one another. So yeah, this is uh, they are very sociable animals, so they would make good uh, good topic for an early documentary. It's interesting that they chose this too because after like we were talking about after nature's half acre where i felt like they were kind of like okay what do we do next right um they knew a lot about elk they knew a lot about mm -hmm. deer they'd done bambi so they brought those animals into the studio to draw they knew a lot of their behavior patterns and they had studied them so it made sense to follow them because they are a compelling story whether or not they anthropomorphize them or not um, they're a great animal to follow around, and what a beautiful setting Washington is. Oh yeah, and it, the, the cinematography it. was gorgeous in it. Yeah, it didn't win an Academy Award, however. But what did in 1952 was a film called Waterbirds. Now, this film was actually done in conjunction with the National Audubon Society, and I believe a zoo, maybe the Denver Zoo. No, um, the Denver Museum of Natural History. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, and it followed this. Now we've kind of breaking away from you know we've been in sort of America. Here now we're kind of breaking away from it because this, I believe, goes with different water birds, maybe even throughout the world. It's been a long time since I've seen it, um, but and I know it focuses on sort of what's the phrase I would use, sort of evolutionary adaptation, you know, um, uh, that kind of thing, like how they've adapted to their surroundings and you know being able yeah. to swim and and all that kind of, kind of a stuff. Darwinism type of right look right. at things, uh -huh. um, and and it's. Uh, interesting too, like when they break out from the U.S., that there's now over a dozen cinematographers here. Uh, it's not just yeah. two people sitting out, you know, on a hillside for a year. There are people all over the world shooting video. I, I don't even know how much film footage they had here, to be honest with you. But I'm sure it had to be one of the most that they had. And again, they use a lot of great features here. Um, and birds are such a wonderful story as well because they are, without anthropomorphizing them, they are very human. Um, you know, they have yeah. they treat their children with respect. I mean, some birds. Um, yep, yep, yep. No, no. You know, for sure. Uh, yeah, but they definitely treat their children 
like children and they definitely raise a family and uh, some of the mate for life i mean yeah, the, absolutely. The, the mating pair for life and i think that's why eventually when we get to you know more recent times we look at penguins um the, that film won such a i think it won an academy award as well right the march of the penguins i believe so have. i believe, I believe it did, so yeah. So if you look at March of the Penguins, I, I mean, birds are a fascinating creature and we mm -hmm. do love them. It's one of the things that I think us as humans can relate to. Yeah, it, it, that was that was a that's one of my favorite shorts. We'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, 1953, we have two more shorts and then we move into the world of the features. Um, one of them was called The Prowlers of the Everglades. Uh, it was a short about out basically what you could imagine all of the uh, you know different kind of animals in the Everglades, the alligators. Was, yeah, it was birds. mostly about alligators. Yeah, yeah, mostly about alligators, but also other kinds of birds and uh, you Raccoons know, rec like that, exactly, yeah. otters and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff that you find in the, in the Everglades. Um, that did not win an Academy Award. However, one of the more popular shorts was one called Bear Country. Um, and this is one that I've actually seen a lot of. And this 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 is basically, it follows a family of a mother and her cubs all the way from birth to when she abandons them. Every black bear mother leaves their children behind and, mm -hmm. and sends them off on their own. Correct, Mike? <laughs> Correct. So, and that's the if I'm if my memory serves, that's the end of the film, right, Josh? When he when he yeah. when she walks away, walks away. Yeah, it's that she um, like sends him up a tree or something like that. Isn't that what she does? And then right, I think that's also the plot of the movie Boyhood. I think that's yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that movie. It it ends with the boy basically like leaving the nest. Right. <laughs> so. Before we move on to the feature films, Josh, I want you to speak, just kind of button up the shorts here, and I'll, I'll say that by saying, which one of them do you think, if or ones, if people wanted to kind of look back on the True Life Adventure shorts? Um, you know, and, and, and look, now you've compulsively watched all of them, um, but not everybody else needs to have that same kind of compulsion. No, uh, you shouldn't. <laughs> maybe you only want to watch a couple. Which ones would you recommend? The two that I would recommend to people, uh, especially if you're a Disney nature fan, whether or not you believe in the anthropomorphizing or not, Waterbirds, like you said, is beautiful. It focuses on several different things. So in our culture now of I need to see something else in the next five minutes or I'm bored, um, right, right. Waterbirds works for that. Again, I think that their birds are the closest things for us to relate to. Maybe besides Bear Country, I think that Bear Country might also be one, but I'm I wouldn't recommend that one to people. Um, and wh well why as, is why is that? I think that there's enough uh, bear documentaries, and maybe even okay. better better bear documentaries out there. Okay. Um, than than this. Uh, Grizzly Man would be some, you know, one that I would say watch um, as far as bear patterns. But um, go back and I, I mean, like Seal Island isn't the best documentary that you're ever going to watch, but it's always amazing to go back and see the first time that somebody ever did something like this. Right. Um, you know, it, it's like as if you were going back to see the original anything. Um, right. you got to kind of put yourself in that mindset and think like, wow, nobody had done this before, you know, like, and these, you know, half a dozen people at the studio said this would be something that's worthwhile. RKO didn't even 
think it was worthwhile. No. Um, and as well as it was actually the launching pad, if people don't know this, for Buena Vista distributions, Buena which, Vista International distributions. Which I was, which, yeah, which, which, which I was just about to get into with the very first um, feature-length film, which is The Living Desert. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the launching pad, again, for these, uh, you're talking about time-lapse um, cinematography, which is the first. You're talking about Disney launching his own distribution. Yep. Uh, which still exists today. We, I mean, they still distribute of course, all yeah. of their own films. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about Seal Island and what it started. Whether or not it's the most amazing thing you've seen, debatable. But uh, it's a beautiful film, and you got to recognize it for what it is. And then Waterbirds is an amazing short. And if you're not in the long run for an hour and a half of nature documentaries, I suggest Waterbirds to people. I think that's great. And I think that... Um you know it's one of those genres where we've come a long way with what we could do um and what we're willing to do and what budgets will do it's important to remember that all of these were shot on a pretty pretty shoestring budget and many of these made a lot of film a lot of money for the for the uh for the studio but they were never really expensive and now we get into nature documentaries where we're shooting you know <laughs> IMAX cameras on top of uh, uh, on uh, on drones and things like that all over the place so I, I think there's an antiquated um, aspect to some of these as well that well, when they shot I'm sorry to interrupt you but when they shot Earth um, back in what like 10 years ago almost yeah, yeah it must be something like that, that. it um, it had to be like forty to fifty million dollars, exactly. Something like that. I mean, huge uh, budget. And huge the payback. And I mean, the payback on these. I know that, that that we're all. I mean, I like the Disney nature films, and that you guys, uh, you know, whether or not it's anthropomorphized thing, whatever. That there's something to be said about Disney nature and what they're trying to accomplish there. Um, but they're not making the huge payback on any of these films at all. Right. You know, right. they're not making Avengers money. No. Never. They'll no. never make that. But the fact no, no, that they're no. trying to do something um, to help the world environmentally, whether it's animals, plants, whatever, is something to be said about that. And at the end of the day, whether you believe in the stories that they tell or not, I think the premise in, uh, you know, donating this money, in trying to create awareness, etc., means a lot more to the Disney nature folks than anything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and of course, that's what Animal Kingdom is all about as well. So I think uh -huh. they, they they pair well completely. So the beginning of this happening with True Life Adventures makes a whole lot of sense. That'll do it for this episode of Radio Harambe. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to pick up this conversation and talk about all the feature-length films and some of the rest of the history of True Life Adventures as well. Don't forget to check out our website, jomboeveryone.com. Uh, there you'll find everything you need to know about Disney's Animal Kingdom. While there, also, please check out our store. We are selling some great unofficial Animal Kingdom merchandise, including our Warden Wilson Matua's Air Rangers t-shirts and our Not-A-Half-Day Park t-shirts as well. All the 
profits from that go to our conservation partners. Uh, feel free to join us on Twitter. I am at Radio Harambe. Mike is at Jumbo Everyone. Uh, if you're looking for more information on Josh, go to modernmouseradio.com. There you'll find his podcast and a link to all the social media for as well. So for Safari Mike and for Josh, I am Dave McBride. Quaharini, go well, and thank you for listening to Radio Harambe.